Hi, and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today, we are concluding our series entitled Extraordinary. We've been studying how ordinary people can do extraordinary things because of our extraordinary Savior, Jesus Christ. On the final night when he was with his disciples, he shared one extraordinary sacred meal with them, a meal we still share today. In Luke chapter 22, verse 19, it says, This is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Today's episode is titled, An Extraordinary Meal. Here's Associate Pastor Josh Masters. We thank you, Father God, that you are a God of hope and that you are a God of restoration and that once and for all, despite our pain, despite our sin, that you have paid the price. And we ask that you would allow us to glorify your name today. And we give you praise that you allow us to gather together in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. No matter your past or your pain or your failures in life, Jesus Christ has settled that debt once and for all. And that's what we remember and celebrate when we share in the Lord's Supper together, which is what you can see we're going to do together this morning. So as we close out the Extraordinary or Extraordinary series today, I want to just take a moment to let you know how grateful I am and on behalf of J.C. Thompson, how grateful both of us are to have been able to walk through this summer series with you. For the last 11 weeks, we have spent those weeks looking at interactions that Jesus had with the disciples and what that teaches us about ordinary people encountering an extraordinary God. But all the extraordinary miracles that we've talked about, the walking on water, the multiplying of bread, even the transfiguration, all of those miracles that we have studied are only pointing to the most extraordinary miracle of all, which is Christ's sacrifice for our sins and the resurrection that makes encountering a holy God possible. Everything that was extraordinary in this series leads only to the most extraordinary. And on the final night that Jesus was with his disciples, Jesus shared one extraordinary, sacred meal with those disciples, and he brought a renewed promise from God into focus. It's a meal that we still share today with remembrance and self-examination. We call it communion or the Lord's Supper. But of course, the disciples would have called this Passover. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 today, starting in verse 17. So you can go ahead and turn or swipe there in your Bibles. It's going to be on page 797 if you're using the Bible available here at Brookwood in our bookstore. Passover was a cornerstone of hope for the Jewish people. And in fact, Passover still is a cornerstone of hope for the Jewish people. It's a reminder of God's grace in delivering them out of slavery from Egypt, looking backward, but it also looks forward, pointing to the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagida, the Messiah and coming King. Let's look at verse 17 together. Verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, The disciples came to Jesus and he asked, where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? 
Now, we won't read the entire passage, but Jesus tells them to go and find a certain man who they don't know who has already prepared a room for them to celebrate Passover. So after the disciples follow Jesus' instructions and they find this man, they all go up to the upper room of this man's house. And once they reach the upper room for Passover and they're arriving for the Passover meal, that is when Jesus washes the disciples' feet in an incredible act of servant leadership. And JC did a great job teaching us about that last week, about that scene where he washes the disciples' feet. And if you uh, were not here last week or if you happened to be in the nine o'clock service last week when we had a medical emergency and had to end the service earlier, I want to encourage you, please go online and watch that message by JC because it leads right into what we're doing today. But he washed their feet and then Jesus taught the disciples. He, he taught them the things that they were going to need to know before he left. But then when it came time to begin the actual Passover meal, Jesus says this. I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I won't eat this meal again. I won't celebrate Passover again until its meaning, its full meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What was he saying to the disciples? See, the disciples are expecting this to be a, a regular Passover meal, which is holy in and of itself. It was still a holy meal. But there's a liturgy to it. There's, there's the same words, the same blessings are spoken every time. And the disciples are expecting the same Passover that they have experienced their whole life. But its true meaning is about to be revealed and fulfilled by Jesus. Everything the Jews had been observing in this ceremony for the last 1,500 years before Jesus came had been pointing to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ since the very beginning. Every aspect of the celebration points to Christ. And in this passage that we're looking at, Jesus will turn that celebration into a practice for believers to observe today. So knowing that, knowing the weight of that, we cannot approach communion with casual hearts. It is not something that we do flippantly or something that we do quickly. Look what Paul wrote. Paul said, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread or drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or you drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. The Lord's Supper is something that we take seriously and we evaluate ourselves. But make sure you understand this. You may have caught the word unworthily in there. Don't take the cup unworthily. When Paul says, don't take the Lord's Supper unworthily, that doesn't mean unworthy of God's grace. 
Because let me be very clear, in a very real way, none of us are worthy of His grace. None of us are worthy of taking the cup in the bread. That's why He provided it. No, the Greek doesn't mean unworthy. What it actually means in the Greek is irreverently. Don't take the Lord's Supper irreverently, taking the elements without embracing the solemn meaning that Christ has placed on the practice. The Lord's Supper, hear me, is not a ritual of repetition, but a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice and an evaluation of our faith. Communion is a meal of remembrance and self-examination. That's your first fill-in under A. Communion is a meal of remembrance and self-examination. We must approach the practice of communion and its symbolism with a deliberate desire to connect with Christ. Every time we take communion, every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we must be deliberate in a desire to connect with Jesus Christ in a very real way as if he's sitting at the table with us because indeed he is. Through communion, Jesus is inviting us into the same intimacy that he shared with the disciples that night, that level of intimacy. Just as baptism is a symbol of our participation in Christ's death and resurrection, the Lord's Supper allows us to participate in his suffering, to be part of the suffering that he endured. Look at 1 Corinthians. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? And the Greek word that's used twice there for participation, participating in the blood, participating in the body, that Greek word for participation is koinonia. Koinonia. It means an intimate fellowship with deep communication and partnership. Every element of the Passover feast points to a deeper, more intimate relationship with Jesus. So let me ask you this. When was the last time that you took part in communion or the Lord's Supper and you felt a deep, intimate connection with Jesus? When was the last time you took the bread and you took the cup and more than an exercise, you felt connected to God? My hope this morning is by exploring the meaning behind these symbols and the story behind these symbols that we'll learn how to draw closer to Jesus as we share in the Lord's Supper together. So how do we intentionally seek an intimate connection and communion with God during the Lord's Supper? Here's the first thing. We commune with Christ by reflecting on a tragic betrayal. We commune with Christ by reflecting on a tragic betrayal. We cannot wholly appreciate the sacrifice of Christ until we fully understand the betrayal of Christ. And I'm not just talking about the betrayal of Judas in this story, but the betrayal of this broken world against Christ. 
more importantly, your betrayal of Christ, my betrayal of Christ. That is where the heart of communion is. Verse 20. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the 12 disciples while they were eating. And he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one of them in turn asked, am I the one, Lord? Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus is at the table. He's with 12 guys. And he says, one of you is going to betray me. But rather than each of their responses being, well, I know it's not me. I'm not the one. No. All of them say, is it me? Am I the one? Is it me this time that will betray you? Why is that their response? Now, certainly I think that we've learned through this series that the disciples had learned that Jesus had an extraordinary supernatural insight, but I think it goes much deeper than that. I think instinctively, each one of us is aware of our sin. And I think that deep down inside, in our hearts, and sometimes not that deep down, we are aware of our own betrayal of God. And I think although we push it away and we deny it, we walk around every day with the knowledge that we have betrayed God. All of us, Isaiah says, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. And we have left God's path to follow our own. Yet, the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. That's a poetic way that Isaiah is saying that poetically. But what that really means is that we have left God. We have abandoned God. We have betrayed God. Our sins make us enemies of God. But look at Romans. For if, while we were still God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Our broken nature is to reject, abandon, and betray God. And that's a difficult truth. That's difficult for us to grasp. But until we have completely grasped our own betrayal of Christ, we will never fully live in the power of his sacrifice for that betrayal. Deep down, we know our sinful nature. We carry it. So when Christ says, one of you is going to betray me, I don't think it's a big leap for every single one of them to say, is it me? Is this my day of failure? Because don't many of us live just waiting for our next failure? Instead of living in the promise that we've been restored? But then when you do come to terms with your own betrayal of God, you can embrace the sacrifice of Christ with a gratitude so deep that you become devoted to him as Lord instead of just a ticket to heaven. And then he becomes the Lord of your life. Back to verse 22. 
Greatly distressed, each one of them asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? And he replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. And Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. Jesus says, the one who ate from this bowl with me is the one who will betray me. John gives us a little bit more detail. John says, Jesus responded, it is the one to whom I give the bread that I dip into the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. The matzah, or the unleavened bread, is dipped into one of two bowls. The first bowl, the first one is filled with bitter herbs. It's bitter. And it is um, it's designed to represent their slavery in Egypt, the bitterness of their slavery. And then the other bowl is a paste that they make. It's a paste that they make from fruit and spices and wine and, they, and, and nuts and they blend it together. And that represents the mortar that they were forced to mix and use to build Egyptian cities while they were in slavery. Both are a reminder of their chains in slavery, just as we remember how we were enslaved to sin during the Lord's Supper. And in this case, Jesus takes the bread and he dips it for Judas and he hands it to Judas. Now, during the Passover, dipping the bread for someone on their behalf and giving it to them was a sign of great honor. It was put aside for only the most distinguished of guests. It was also an intimate act of connection. You know, last week, JC made an incredible point about Jesus humbling himself to wash Judas's feet, even though he knew the betrayal was coming. And now, again, Jesus humbly honors Judas, even though he's about to leave to betray him. And that's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? Hard for us to understand. But it shouldn't be. Because what did Christ do in response to our betrayal, to your betrayal? He did something far more humbling than getting on his knees to wash our feet or handing us bread. No, when Christ saw your betrayal and he saw my betrayal, he left a throne of glory. And he took off the crown of glory where he was being worshipped by the angelic realm to be born a human being among dirty animals and then live a life of rejection only to sacrifice that life. Are we amazed by that? We should be amazed by that. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, are you willing to really enter into the humility and the suffering that Christ endured as a response to your betrayal? And part of that suffering was the torture of his body. We commune with Christ by reflecting on a sacrificed body. 
We commune with Christ by reflecting on a sacrificed body. During the Passover, each piece of the meal is eaten in a very specific order. It is designed to remember and also tell the Exodus story to the next generation and carry on the story from generation to generation. We already talked about the bitter herbs. We talked about the paste that represented the mortar. And there was a lamb. Of course, we don't have a lamb up here. But there was a lamb, and that lamb in the meal represents the lamb that was sacrificed before leaving Egypt. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. In the matzah, or the unleavened bread, that has symbolism too. What is unleavened bread? What does that mean? What'd you say? Without yeast. That's right. 20 Brookwood points right there. Leaven is similar to yeast. It makes the dough rise. But when God led his people out of Egypt, there was no time for making regular bread so that they were instructed to make unleavened bread for the journey. That's why they have it in Passover. But now listen, this is important. In the escape, there was certainly a practical reason to have unleavened bread. But there's also a spiritual component. In Scripture, as you read through Scripture, leaven, or if your translation says yeast, leaven is always a symbol of slavery and sin. Always. Leaven represents slavery and especially sin. You know why that is? Why do you think yeast represents sin? Who wants to guess? What's that? It permeates everything. Good answer. Good answer. Sin, like leaven, corrupts the nature of the dough from the inside. And it does that by puffing it up and making it bigger than it should be. And that is how sin works in our life. It corrupts us from the inside. It contaminates the whole person. And then it puffs us up because all sin is based in pride and selfishness. So the unleavened bread represents fleeing from slavery, but it also represents purging ourselves from the slavery of sin. That's why in preparation for Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, they had to get all yeast, everything out of the house. They had to wash everything down so there wasn't a speck of that symbol of sin in their household. And as Jesus walked the disciples through Passover and talked about the bread, he would have been relaying this Exodus story with the same words and the same blessings that they had heard their entire lives. This is a liturgy, right? There, remember, there's a liturgy to this. There's a script that they're used to, that they're familiar with, that they've heard year after year. And although it is holy, they are familiar enough with it to know the next words that are coming out of Jesus's mouth until verse 26. Verse 26 says, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it into pieces and he gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. 
And Luke adds the detail that Jesus says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. None of that is in the Passover script. This is a sacred meal. And the disciples would have been shocked when Jesus departed from the liturgy of Passover. Jesus is saying, this symbol that you've been partaking of, this bread that represents freedom from slavery and a sinless life has been pointing to me the whole time. The last 15 years have been pointing, 1,500 years have been pointing to me. I am the sinless path out of slavery. My body will be broken and it will be given on your behalf to win that freedom for you. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 16, 13, the matzah bread is actually referred to as the bread of suffering. And that's exactly what Jesus was about to endure on our behalf, having his body broken. The prophecy of Isaiah says it this way. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. So we reflect on our betrayal of God and the broken, sinless body of Christ that was offered for that betrayal. But we also commune with Christ by reflecting on a poured out blood. We commune with Christ by reflecting on a poured out blood. On the night that God prepared his children to flee from slavery in Egypt, the last of 10 plagues was brought down upon an unrepentant Egypt. Who remembers what the 10th plague was? The final plague? Death of the firstborn. Even though Pharaoh was warned many times, he would not free God's people and the final plague was the death of every firstborn male child in Egypt, both people and all the livestock. The death of the firstborn across the entire nation. But God said to his people, each family should sacrifice a perfect, unblemished lamb at sundown and place some of the blood above your doorframe. Place some of the blood ab above your doorframe. And then Exodus 12, God says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. That's why this feast is called Passover. Because the spilled blood of a perfect lamb protected God's people from his wrath against sin. That when judgment and death came, those who were sealed by the blood of the lamb were protected. Not because they were any more innocent than the Egyptians, but because of God's mercy and grace. Verse 27. And he took the cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. And the traditional Passover blessing Jesus would have used, of course, translated into English. But the way he would have given thanks for the cup was this. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, 
king of the universe who creates the fruit of the vine. And after Jesus gave that blessing of the cup, verse 27, he took the cup of wine and he gave thanks for it to God. And he gave it to them and he said, each of you drink from it. For this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Now these words, this departure from the Passover script would have been surprising to the disciples, but what would not have been new to them was the imagery that Jesus was evoking. Because when Jesus uses the phrase new covenant, and here it says covenant, but all the other gospels say new covenant, when he uses the phrase new covenant, he was telling the disciples that he was fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah. And the prophecy of Jeremiah that had been written so long before this says, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, even though I loved them as a husband loves his wife. So by invoking the new covenant, Jesus is saying the covenant that this Passover celebrates, the one based on the Exodus getting you out of Egypt, that is over. But Jeremiah continues in his prophecy with the Lord saying, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. And how does the Messiah seal this new covenant? With the sacrifice and pouring out of his own blood. So with that, he also fulfills, and the disciples would have understood this, he also fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah that says, because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood, I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. I know I'm giving you a lot of information today. I'm giving you a lot of Old Testament passages and prophecies today. But as we prepare our hearts for communion together, it is vitally important to understand that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. The New Testament wasn't invented when Jesus arrived. It just reveals all the promises of the Old Testament. Thousands of years of writings and traditions and feasts and prophecies are all coming together to be fulfilled in this moment at this table with the disciples and in the few days following as Jesus is arrested and crucified and then raised from the dead. That's the revelation Jesus is giving to the disciples and that's the revelation he gives to us. Jesus proclaims, I am the Passover lamb. I'm the one whose blood will cover you when death and judgment come for this world. My wrath against sin, and make no mistake, the wrath of Jesus Christ is coming to make right all the sins of this world. His wrath is coming, but he says that my wrath will pass over you if you are marked by the blood of the Lamb. I will pass over those who belong to me. 
because my blood is my promise and my assurance and I will set you free from the slavery of sin and death for all eternity. He says this Passover cup represents my blood. Drink it to remember me. Now in the Passover meal, this is very important, there are four cups of wine that are served at very specific points in the meal. And each one of the four cups represents a promise God made in Exodus 6. Now the cups of the, the names of the cups vary a little bit depending on the translation and, and which tradition. But here are the four cups that are served at Passover. The first one is the cup of sanctification. I will bring you out, Exodus 6.6. 6. The next is the cup of deliverance. Sometimes it's called the cup of wrath because it's associated with the ten plagues. The cup of deliverance, I will deliver you. The cup of redemption or blessing, I will redeem you. The cup of praise and salvation and restoration, I will take you for my people. And guess which cup Jesus used in the Passover feast to represent his blood? The cup of redemption. I will redeem you. So at this point in the Passover, Christ has shared with the disciples a cup of sanctification, a cup of deliverance, and now the cup of redemption that represents his blood. But before they get to the fourth cup, before they get to the fourth cup, Jesus says this in verse 29. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus didn't drink the fourth cup. The disciples didn't drink the fourth cup because the full day of restoration hasn't come yet. But a new beginning has been promised. So we commune with Christ by reflecting on a new beginning. We commune with Christ by reflecting on a new beginning. The final cup of praise and restoration is coming but we celebrate a new beginning in our salvation and in our coming King, in Christ's coming reign. Jesus said, one day I will drink that fourth cup anew with you. And he's referring to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's when he'll drink the final cup of restoration. And many people know the passage from Revelation that talks about that feast, that banquet, but Isaiah talked about it hundreds of years before John did. And Isaiah wrote, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away every tear. He will remove forever all insult and mockery against his land and his people. The Lord has spoken. So the greatest Passover feast is still to come. When the blood of the lamb protects us and passes over us. 
And as we take communion, we should reflect on that final victory, but there's also a new beginning to celebrate right now. You all know the verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. It's already come. The old has gone. The new is here. Listen, we are not called to live in the shame of our betrayal, but as ambassadors of the new beginning, he's paid for with his body and sealed with the covenant of his blood. That is what we're called to do. And that is why, because we need to be reminded of our purpose and our mission and even our forgiveness, our, our, how we've been forgiven, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Announce my death until I come again. And so that's what is we are going to do today. And the Lord's Supper is a way for us to have community with one another, but more importantly, to participate with Christ in his suffering and draw closer to him. Now, this is practice. This is a practice specifically shared by believers and only for believers. So if you don't feel comfortable sharing in the elements today, that is okay. There is no pressure for you to share and you are welcome here. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I ask you to get your satchels out and go ahead and get your elements prepared. If you didn't get the elements when you came in, just raise your hand and we'll have ushers that will um, get them to you. Just raise your hand nice and high and we'll get them to you. And as they do that, I want to say this, as we make sure everybody has elements. It is very rare for a church this size to partake in this celebration using real fresh bread. That's very rare. But we have an incredible team that bakes fresh bread for thousands of people, thousands of you, before every Lord's Supper. They break fresh bread. And then it is cut up by hand with gloves. And, <laughs> and it's packaged for you in these satchels, which volunteers have hand-stamped the scripture onto. They don't come that way. Why do we do all that? We do all that because... The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is worth taking extra effort for. It's worth taking seriously, and we care about you. Because communion and its symbolism are central to our faith. And yes, we only do corporate communion four times a year, sometimes a little bit more. But you should be incorporating this into your life, into your faith. You don't need all these accoutrements. You just need some bread and, and, and something to drink, some juice. And you should be doing this regularly with your small groups, with your community groups. You should be doing this regularly with your family. This should be incorporated into your lives so that you are constantly reflecting on these items. So just as our team took time to prepare these things for you, I'm going to ask us to take time to prepare right now. In a moment, you can see the worship team is joining me again. In a moment, the worship team is going to offer a song to the Lord. It is their offering to the Lord, not to you. But rather than sing, I'm going to actually ask you, don't sing. I want you to stay seated quietly. And I encourage you to sit and reflect on the four points and prepare your own heart for communion. Evaluate your relationship with God. Is there anything that you need to make right with him before you put these elements in your mouth? Reflect on our betrayal of Christ and our need for salvation. Reflect on the sinless bread of life. 
reflect on the blood of the new covenant and praise God for the hope of a new beginning. Listen to the lyrics, focus on the lyrics, reflect on those four or five things. And then at the end, stay in the moment. When the song ends, stay in the moment, don't clap. Stay with the Holy Spirit and what he's telling you. And then we will share in the Lord's Supper together. Thanks for joining us for this week's podcast. At Brookwood, we want to help you pursue a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience a transformed life. One way you can do this is by getting connected at Brookwood. You can email us, connections at brookwoodchurch.org, or call 864-688-8326 to speak to someone on the Connections team. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast. If you like what you hear, leave a review so others can discover how they can have a transformed life in Christ as well. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.